let me just read what he said. Remember. This is one of our thoughts for the week, right? This is a thought of the day. Yes. And we have a thought every day, but this was one of them this week. Actually today, I believe. Remember to learn and not to do is really not to learn. To know and not to do is really not to know. You know, I guess there's different ways to, to look at that and pick it apart and so on. It reminds me of a, of a great uh, uh, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, Neil Young song, Ohio, where, uh, you know, after the National Guard had shot four people dead, there's the line in that song, how can you run when you know? And, and I would say to people, it's kind of like, how can you give China World Trade Organization membership when you know what they did just years ago in Tiananmen Square when they got that in the 90s. It's that sort of thing that that if knowledge informs action and if you don't take any action with the knowledge, do you really have it? Do you Did you really learn anything if you can't act on it and if you don't act on it? That was Paul Jacob talking about a passage from Stephen Covey's work. And now for our main show. Welcome to This Week in Common Sense, starring Paul Jacob. My name is Timothy Verkula. I'm here to help Paul run through the big stories of the week that have appeared on thisiscommonsense.org. That's his website that he's been working on since 1999. Yep, that's about right. I'm here in these United States of America, actually in the Northwest, the Pacific Northwest specifically. Maybe we should call it the Pacific Northwest. And Paul's not in these United States. Paul is off somewhere gallivanting in England. Are you in England? I am in England because of India and because of Punjab and the Sikhs. There is a region in India called Punjab uh, and there's been problems there uh, where the Sikhs, who are the majority population there, uh, feel like they want their own country and don't want to be under Indian rule. And um, I'm part of a five-person commission, the Punjab Referendum Commission, that has agreed to work with Sikhs for Justice to monitor what they're doing, to look at their referendum and make suggestions and file reports on how we think it did according to somewhat international standards and, and just best practices from our experience. And on the commission are academics and people who've been active in initiative and referendum, direct democracy. So it's a, uh, what the Sikhs are doing is asking the people around the world to vote in a referendum. Do they want to be independent or do they not want Punjab to be independent? And of course, they'd love to vote in Punjab, but to do so or to talk about it would get you arrested. One of the one of the tasks that in a in a previous report we did looking into it, I was charged with looking at the response of the Indian government to the effort to have a referendum. And, um, you know, sometimes you, you can understand people don't you know, they don't want 
parts of their country to leave, to form a new country, uh, all kinds of hurt feelings. But hey, people get to make their own decisions in life or should, and and we support that. So we 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 obviously the commission takes no position on whether Punjab should be a uh, you know completely independent country or an autonomous region or just lump it and and uh, stick with 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 India and of course I'm sure there are people in Punjab who don't see that as lumping it at all uh, that's what they would want so our goal is just to help the process happen and uh, and so we're here in in London because this is on the 31st of October this Sunday is the first referendum where people will be coming they're expecting you know probably 5,000 people uh Sikhs who are or or others from Punjab who are in England who will come vote and they'll hold them in the United States they'll hold them in other places throughout the world um so it's it's uh it's the sort of thing I I, I consider maybe writing a, a commentary and maybe I will for next week on it but it's it's something that you know we're doing as as you know, a service to the the process itself, direct democracy, and uh, it's interesting, but it's it's you know not my number one political uh, uh, activity at, at the at the moment. Obviously, well, you said we under what aegis are you uh, working there? Well, I'm talking about the five commissioners: Dane Waters, who's someone who's also on the Citizens in Charge Foundation board, uh, is one of the five, and and Bruno Kaufman, uh, Yanina Welp, who's a, uh, a Spanish uh, academic who studies direct democracy, um, and who am I? Who am I forgetting? I've just spaced somebody out, and and oh, uh, Matt uh, Quirip and uh, who's, who's a British uh, academic. And, and so, uh, you know, we've, we've formed this commission to help, uh, but it'd be interesting to see how it, how it all plays out. And increasingly in this world, I talked to a cab driver on the way, I, you know, I'm, I just landed in, in London, took an hour trip into town and, and, uh, and so haven't slept and, and, and <laughs> feel kind of weird, but, but uh, beautiful place, love coming to London, love talking to cab drivers or Uber drivers. Usually on the way to the airport, I took an Uber and the gentleman was from Nigeria and he started talking about, China. We were talking about different political things, including Nigeria. And, um, and he just mentioned that with Taiwan, which of course we wrote about on, on uh, Wednesday, I guess it was, uh, or was it Thursday? All flows together now, but I think it was Wednesday. Anyway, uh, um, but he basically said, in this day and age, how can one country just attack and take over another country? It just shouldn't happen. And of course, that's kind of was the idea behind the United Nations and the idea behind some sort of world order is that you, you know, one country can't just aggress and, and invade and take over another country. And um, it's interesting that, that so often 
uh, and the commentary was uh, two words, uh, Taiwan in two words. And, and so often when people are talking about China and Taiwan and the, the tension across the Taiwan Strait, they fail to mention the cause of the tension. The cause of the tension is not that Taiwan sees itself as its own country. How would that cause any tension for anybody? The cause of the tension is that Xi Jinping and the Chinazis, as I call them, or the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, the rulers of China, constantly invade the airspace, threaten Taiwan with military exercises, continually say that they reserve the right to invade, to attack with missiles, to kill lots of people. Um, that's the source of the tension. And I know a lot of times people look at it as a superpower China versus superpower US and it's all global politics. But as, as I pointed out in this piece, and I basically just uh, you know quoted uh, uh, John Oliver, who did a piece on, on uh, Taiwan last weekend uh, in, on his HBO show, I said that funny HBO show, and uh, uh, but he pointed out uh, people who aren't Taiwanese making decisions for Taiwan is a bit he used the F word ing played out historically. Same thing the cab driver said, which is basically what is this? Why does this happen? It shouldn't happen. He went on to say, so maybe this is John Oliver, not the cab driver. Uh, so maybe the best thing we can do is move past talking about Taiwan like it's some kind of poker chip in a never-ending game of us versus them. Because the fact is, Taiwan is not a plucky bulwark against the Red Menace, nor is it some island-sized Viagra to rejuvenate the Chinese nation. Taiwan is 23 million people, little, little uh, note, almost 24, but who's counting, who in the face of considerable odds have built a free democratic society and very much deserve the right to decide their own future in any way they deem fit. And that's not just true about Taiwan. That's true about every place on earth and every person ought to have a right to be free and to make his own choices. Every country, every, every place. Um, and I, I've, I've uh, for years, uh, I don't think you like my little joke, but I always say I'm for secession, except if you, you can't secede if you're trying to keep slavery or you can't secede from another country if your goal in seceding is genocide or you know so on and so on. But otherwise, if it's peaceful, then let the people vote. And that's why I'm here in London. And, uh, and that's why we've, I've done so many commentaries about what's happening in China, what's happened in Hong Kong, what is being threatened in Taiwan. And the, the reason this piece was called Taiwan in two words is that Xi Jinping, the, uh, uh, and I, I 
I never quite say her first name right, or it's actually her last name, but uh, which is Chai. Uh, she has been so spot on, constant threats from Xi Jinping and the Chinese, but she just deals with it like a pro. And she basically made the point after she recently said, you know, they have to unify or reunify, which of course I pointed out in this piece, you can't reunify because Taiwan's never been a part of the People's Republic of China. And anyone who knows the long history of Taiwan knows it's been taken over by all kinds of people. All kinds of people have decided they can tell Taiwan what to do by force, including the nationalist Chinese after World War II. Uh, but Taiwan is its own place and deserves to have some rights. And what, what Chai Ing-wen said was neither country, China or Taiwan, is subordinate to the other. That, and she has said this from, for the, the whole time she's been in. She's in her second term. She's been in five, I guess, five years uh, as president. And she's constantly talked about, look, if you want to talk, then you have to respect us because we're not going to sit down and talk with people who don't respect us, who think they can just stomp on us like, like a bunch of thugs anytime they want. And, and uh, so anyway, I made the point at the end of this that that's what, what we need to remember is that Taiwan is not subordinate. And that's that's something that um, you know we all fear war. Who would who in their right mind would ever want to go to war with a country that's 1.4 billion people? And China has made massive uh, increases in its military capacity. But you also are left with a situation in which if Taiwan could be just oh, well, we're not going to fight uh, and could just be taken over. Well, who else in Asia is going to feel like that they're not going to be taken over by China? It's why Japan has already come out. Japan's been so reluctant for since World War II to take a military stand and has said they are coming to the defense of Taiwan. Uh, the new Japanese premier has asked for a doubling of defense spending. Now, people who know me and people who, who've read Common Sense for decades now, uh, no, I'm not exactly a hawk. I'm not looking for the US to be the world's policeman. I increasingly though, feel like we are at a time in history in which if we don't respond to the threat of China, and this is a totalitarian threat, this isn't, you know, if they were just Maoists, they would just be starving their own people and screwing up their own country. Um, but they are not communist. They are totalitarian capitalists in a sense. They have weaponized state capitalism and they are using it as a, as a weapon along with military. And, and I think we're, we're looking at World War III if the West, if the rest of Asia doesn't respond and say, wait a second, we're not going to let you do that. And in the same way that I think had Neville Chamberlain not flown to Munich, 
and met with Hitler and said, yeah, you can you can have the Sudetenland. That ought to solve all the problems and then we'll have peace. Well, I see Taiwan as the modern day Sudetenland. And uh, and in fact, a little noise out the window here. But in fact, uh, you know, the Germans reoccupied the Rhineland and and with military forces, which violated the treaty after World War Two. And it's almost seen universally by historians that when they did that, they were not strong and had France and Britain and others come and said, no, 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 you're not going to do that. It may have prevented uh, World War II. Now, you know, I'm not big on, oh, if this would have happened, that would have happened because we don't know. The world's a pretty complex place. And, and you know, we, we can't read the future and we can't read the past from what didn't happen, what might have happened if something else happened. But the bottom line is, as much as, as I, I look at foreign affairs and I, I think we want to avoid getting entangled in all kinds of problems. We want to avoid being the world's policeman at the, the very foundational level. Strength, the, the Chinese are not going to be talked out of anything. The reason they have not invaded and taken over Taiwan is because they think they either can't successfully do it or that the cost is too darn high. If that cost comes down, if that cost isn't too high, if they think they can do it, they're going to. They have said they're going to, and I believe them. And so it's critical for the rest of the world, the free world at least, to connect up and say, no, 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 we're not losing free countries to military aggression. And, and so I favor a, an alliance of countries, and you're seeing it happen right now. I've been really heartened by what has happened in the last couple of years since I, I visited Taiwan. I've been in, interested in China since Tiananmen Square and, and uh, have followed things for years. But taking a, a visit to Hong Kong, where, where uh, the, the Hong Kong police tear gassed me, and then going to Taiwan deepened the uh, commitment because I left, I flew out of Taiwan uh, to come back home. And I said to myself on that plane, Taiwan has to get added to the list of things that I do that I care about because it, it has to stay free. And, um, and part of the reason I think Taiwan is such a great example of that is after World War II, now people think that there's, there's the nationalist Chinese that, that have Taiwan, and there's the communist Chinese on the mainland. But when Chiang Kai-shek and the nationalist Chinese came over to Taiwan, they represented, there's a couple million of them fleeing their loss to, to Mao. Um, there was a couple million of them, there was about 12% of the, of the population. In other words, there are already Taiwanese people living there. And a lot of them are ethnically Han Chinese, but they see themselves as Taiwanese in the same way that, you know, I'm ethnically Irish and English, but you know what? I'm an American. I don't see myself as Irish or English. And if Ireland or England decided they were going to attack and take over America and make us be part of Ireland or England, I'd fight. 
So, um, and they're not, they're not nearly as bad as the, as the Chinazis. So, um, no, it, it, people look at that history and they misunderstand that Taiwan was its own place. It had its own people, its own culture. It was different than the Chinese mainland. And of course, when the nationalists first came over to Taiwan post-World War II, and, and Taiwan had been in a rapid growth period for 50 years because Japan had taken over Taiwan and had done all kinds of improvements. Now, I'm not saying Japan was, Imperial Japan was any wonderful um, occupying force, but the way they occupied Taiwan was much, much different than what they did in China and, and elsewhere in Korea and so on. And in fact, because it's part of that island chain, Taiwan is part of the same island chain as Japan. They were looking to bring Taiwan into not as a as a you know colony, but as part of mainland Japan or or you know the the Japanese nation. And so uh, World War II obviously losing it ended all that. But it's what happened as soon as the nationalists came over was violence. Uh, what they call the white terror, between 10 and 20,000 people murdered, disappeared. People, uh, the nationalists went in and killed anybody that they thought was a threat. If you were a respected professor, if you were a well-to-do person who was respected in the community, they might shoot you in the street in front of your family. Um, the I, I read a, a few weeks ago, uh, Formosa Betrayed, which was a book by, I'm going to forget the guy's name now, uh, but but um, oh, George Kerr, I think that's right. Uh, but anyway, he was a U.S. State Department, probably with CIA at some point, uh, but, but uh, was in Taiwan for the nationalists coming over after World War II and saw some of the, the atrocities. And, and so the nationalists in my book are pretty much the same as the communist. It's like, you know, do you want the, the red terror or the black terror? You know, it's, it's neither. And, uh, but, but people, so, so when someone says, well, you know, you had a civil war and Taiwan's just the nationalist Chinese who lost the civil war, they don't know what they're talking about. And, and, uh, and now none of that matters in the sense that the history, what happened 200 years ago or who, who at gunpoint took over Taiwan when doesn't really matter. Because I, I point out in the script, it was a column that, that uh, Pat Buchanan, who I have some respect for, wrote, but he was very into the whole, all the different diplomatics going back and forth between China and, and Taiwan and the U.S. And he asked, who does, the, uh, you know, uh, who does Taiwan belong to? And of course, the, uh, to whom does Taiwan belong? He said it more English, uh, more grammatically correct. But you hear that question and you think, that's the easiest question in the whole world. Belongs to the people of Taiwan. You can't answer that question and say belongs to China. 
or it belongs to Japan because they took it over in 1895, or it belongs to the Dutch because they took it over in what the 1600s, or it belongs somehow as a as a, you know some anti-communist bulwark for the United States. It belongs to the people of Taiwan. And after four decades from the 1940s to 1986 of martial law, no elections, brutal repression, disappearances, a completely fascist totalitarian type regime, they continued to agitate and continued to agitate until they got, until Chiang Kai-shek died, his son takes over and they continue to push and all of a sudden they're talking about having elections. They've gone from having their first elections to having an initiative process where they can do take things the legislature passes to a referendum. They can propose initiatives. They have full elections at the local and state, you know, national level. Uh, Taiwan has become, to me, the biggest success story for freedom and democracy in the late 20th century, uh, and, and certainly the biggest one in the 21st century. And when I think of people struggling and fighting and sacrificing to turn a pretty totalitarian country into a free country, and then to think that somehow all that could be wiped out by the worst totalitarian genocidal regime in the world, you know, that's, that's something I want to fight against. And so we, we, uh, we've never really, you know, we've always dealt with all kinds of issues of common sense. We started talking about reform and term limits and, and we're very, you know, American focused. Uh, every once in a while we deal with foreign policy. Uh, but that has changed some in the last couple of years. And still, you know, 90% of what we're doing is talking about what's happening in the United States. But because of the threat that I think China poses, um, I think we've got to talk about them. And that rubber meets the road uh, across the Taiwan Strait because the biggest success story for freedom and democracy is sitting right there. And I think it is the difference. If Taiwan stays free, we don't, and obviously there's some complexity to, to making a statement like this, and it's my perception, but if Taiwan remains free, we don't have World War III. And if Taiwan falls, there's no stopping China from going on and on, and I think that leads to World War III. So it's, I, I think it's just absolutely critical. And the, the best thing happening has been to see all the others, Germany, Sent a war, and it's not just Taiwan, of course, it's the South China Sea, where they've militarized islands they've built up, where they've sunk Vietnamese boats and Malaysian boats. And, you know, the, the Chinese fishermen seem to be fishermen with a military behind them. And it, it's been a huge, huge problem. But we have seen the French send warships through the South China Sea to keep it open for navigation and to send a message to the Chinese. We've even seen the Germans send warships through and they've been the closest to China in Europe and, and have, have kind of been the most skeptical of doing anything that looks like they're siding with the US in some geopolitical 
you know, a battle. So the the rest of the world, so often in the U.S., when I'm talking about this with people, it's all about superpower U.S. versus superpower China. The rest of the world is not so interested in superpower, you know, battles, but they are scared of what's happening in, in Asia. And, and you see it. This is not just the U.S. reacting to what China's doing. This is Japan and Australia and India and, and all the countries in Southeast Asia and European countries. Um, <clears throat> the world, hopefully, it looks like, is waking up. Well, I'm familiar with Australia, India, and Japan uniting also after this debacle in Afghanistan with the United States. There seems to be an independent entente with those three nations, and it's possible. I see rumblings that Russia might be a silent partner in the entente, that there there is actually alignments happening now, and China is considered a threat widely in, in the world, I think. Yes, you know, uh, there's been tremendous concern about Russia and China joining forces. And both of them, you know, just <laughs> they've never been on the right side of any issue. It's, it's uncanny you could be that bad. But, uh, but there has been friction in, in past decades between Russia and China. And, and, of course, one of the reasons that Kissinger and Nixon ran off to, to Red China in the 70s was to open up kind of another front uh, against the Soviet Union. So, you know, there, there's all of that. It would be interesting to see what, what happens. There's no question that uh, Russia sees that China could be a threat uh, to its interests. Because, um, I mean, you, people, and people, again, a lot of times they don't think about it. Russia's all over that. You know, uh, if, you, if you look at a map of South Korea or Japan, you know, Russia's right there. Uh, you look at a map of China, they got a long border with Russia. And so it's, it's uh, you know, these things, these things do matter. But, it, but I, I would say I, I don't have much faith in Russia doing the right thing, especially long term, especially other than by accident. Uh, but uh, they do have an interest in preventing China from from gobbling up most of that that half of the world. And even without Russia, uh, you know, Japan has stepped up, Australia, uh, they, you know, China did so much to try to, you know, jerk them around with their, their, uh, uh, oh, uh, what's the, what's the institutes, uh, Confucius Institutes and different things that they've had and trying to basically send enough students into Australia that they become an economic uh, element that Australia, you know, can't teach the way they want to teach in their schools because otherwise all the Chinese students will complain and, and cause problems. Well, Australia decided, you know what, we don't want you guys jerking us around. Same thing's happening in the U.S., not at the same level, but the same thing's happening. They're all over. And, and we've had all kinds of cases of professors who are doing very critical research that has national security implications who, oh, forgot to mention that they've got to deal with the Chinese government, forgot to tell the US government. And these are smart people. They know that they're required uh, when they have a deal with some of this research 
So, and, and some of them say they're innocent. We'll see what happens in the end. But um, I feel like I, I remember coming back from Taiwan a couple of years ago and just thinking, I, it, it made me think of Casablanca, my favorite, uh, one of my favorite movies where uh, Humphrey Bogart is lamenting where he is, mainly with uh, Ingrid Bergman. But anyway, uh, also the geopolitical problems of the Nazis. He's in uh, Casablanca in Morocco. And uh, he's thinking back about America and he knocks over his drink and he puts his head down and he says, they're all asleep in America. And of course he meant it was... It was nighttime in America, but he also meant they weren't aware of what was going on. They weren't with it. And I remember uh, thinking how asleep we had been. Um, even myself, you know, uh, you know, I've always been concerned since Tiananmen Square and even before that, obviously. But, but, uh, but it just didn't seem like there was anything that could be done. And, and of course, our the highest levels of the U.S. government, I mean, the, the, within years, a couple of years of Tiananmen Square, China was ushered into the World Trade Organization and given most na favored nation status by Bill Clinton and, and so on and so on. And of course, we had all those, all those uh, allegations and cases of Chinese nationals coming in and having an influence and spending money in our elections. And I mean, after Trump won, you had nothing but wall-to-wall -wall coverage of Russian influence in the election, which turns out to have been, you know, getting people even more hot under the collar than they already were on Facebook. Um, but the, the level of Chinese influence and money that was flowing into American elections in the 1990s is obscene. And, and it just seemed like we never reacted the way we should have. And of course, literally, that's, that's just years after we saw them put down and murder thousands of people. And we realized, you know what, maybe, maybe the culture in, in China, maybe the educational system doesn't lead people to want freedom and democracy, but they want it anyway. And it was obvious they wanted it, that not only the students, but then the workers came into the square from, from uh, Beijing. It, it was obvious that this is where they wanted to go. They wanted more control over their lives than their government. And in fact, uh, there was one uh, protest leader who was asked by an American reporter, you know, do you guys, do you guys feel like you really understand democracy, since you haven't lived with us, uh, lived with it. And, uh, and uh, the guy said, you know, maybe we don't understand democracy, but we understand so well the lack of any democracy. And that speaks volumes. We, you know, as I get older, I think about what kind of world I leave, I've got kids, grandkids, and, and it seems to me that we are at a really critical time, that, that the world wants freedom and democracy, 
even the countries that have had it for a long time are are busy trying to figure out how to shut up their people, uh, whether it's on you know social media or wherever. Um, and you've got this massive, powerful, totalitarian country that hates free speech with every fiber of its being, doesn't even pretend to, to not even phony democracy. They hate democracy whole cloth. And, uh, and so, you know, now's the time. We have to, we have to step up and, and talk about it. And I've, I've been very clear that, you know, I don't have some, you know, magic bullet, uh, but I think the more we talk about it and and point out what's wrong, just in the same way that when we point out what's wrong with our society and can freely talk with each other about it, then good things happen. Things get solved sometimes. We can do the same thing internationally. Good things will happen and and problems can get solved. Well, on that note, we probably could end the podcast considering that you're probably needing some sort of rest after your long trip. And uh, how long was the airplane flight? Oh, I, it's not that bad of a flight. It's just six hours, eight hours, maybe. I uh, what, uh, I left at six and I got here at six. And it's five, so it's seven hour flight because uh, London is five hours ahead of the East Coast. It's morning in London. And I've already tried Starbucks. The flat white wasn't quite as good as my local one. But hey, I'm willing to try another one after I get some sleep. Very good. Well, we can uh, tell people to go to thisiscommonsense.org to read the other four pieces you wrote this week. And I'll put them up on screen for those who go to our page on Rumble. Otherwise, the people who are listening, they can always know that they can go to thisiscommonsense.org. Please do. And uh, we will have, we'll, we'll be ready next week with more thoughts and comments about what's going on and maybe what we might do about it. 